Welcome to Brain Observations, the podcast where we're curious about how the brain and the mind works and how you can use this knowledge to improve your experience of life. I set out to find and talk to some of the most knowledgeable people out there, and at the end of each episode, I sum up what we've learned from today's guest. Me, I'm Maria Sundell, I'm a clinical neurologist, and with this podcast I hope to make scientific evidence on well-being and brain health more easily available. And my wish is to inspire you to learn more and to find ways to improve your own life. I would like to mention that even though I am a medical doctor, this is a personal project and not affiliated with my hospital. The information in this podcast is meant to educate and inspire and should not be taken as medical advice. I advise you to discuss any potential changes to your lifestyle with your own personal doctor. This is even more important if you're experiencing trouble with your mental health. Today's guest is Quinn Conklin, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, USA, where she explores the biopsychological effects of meditation. She has personal experience of meditation from visiting retreats herself and is currently investigating the effects of a one-month silent meditation retreat on biomarkers of stress, inflammation, cellular aging, and social affiliation. Some of her latest research has been on telomeres, a form of internal clock for cellular aging, and how it might be affected by meditative practice. And this is the topic of today's discussion. We will learn more about this particular aspect of longevity research and how finding peace might prolong your life. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited that you could be here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and and excited to talk about some of the things we're doing. Today we're going to talk about your research, which is focused on something called telomeres. And I'm pretty sure we're going to need some background information on this because it's a weird word and it sounds like it's a weird thing. And we're going (laughs) to need to understand a little bit better what that is. Yeah, we'll start with telomeres. And so within our cells, all of our DNA is organized into structures called chromosomes. And so all of the material that codes for our proteins, so our genes, are organized into these structures called chromosomes. And telomeres are the caps at the ends of these chromosomes. And so they are made up of DNA. And so they're DNA and protein complexes that sort of serve as buffers. So they protect the coding DNA and they get incrementally shorter with cellular division. So often they will track with age. um, So they get shorter across the lifespan. There seems to be many other lifestyle factors that can sort of accelerate this shortening. And telomerase is the enzyme that helps to repair the DNA. So it can build back that telomere sequence and build up the telomere at the end of the chromosome. So the telomere themselves are actually made out of the same DNA as the chromosome itself, but it is not encoding. It doesn't hold any information. Right. So it's not a coding DNA sequence in the sense that it isn't a gene in and of itself, but it is made up of DNA And it's a particular sequence that repeats. It's a a repeating sequence of DNA that flanks the end of the coding region. Okay. Do we know why it becomes shorter with time? Yes. So this partly has to do with the, the mechanisms of cellular division and repair. And so when our cells replicate and divide, 
there is machinery that copies the DNA and adds nucleotides to fill in that strand, but it needs a place to attach to. And so when the strand is replicated, it can only replicate to a certain point. And then it also needs a place for this machinery to attach. And so that bit, that sequence never gets filled in. And so they get just a little bit shorter each time these things happen. Telomeres are the most accessible part of the chromosome. And so it's the most likely to be damaged because it's at that tip or the end. Okay. So if we describe it in a sort of a, a quite broad and simple way, we talk about cells that are the small building components of the body and they have a tendency to divide and regenerate. And when that happens, the information in the cell that sits in our DNA needs to be transferred into this new cell. And every time it is being transferred, there's a little bit of wear and tear on it, meaning that the protective cap on it becomes a little bit less with time. And what happens when it shortens down completely? Does it disappear or does it stop functioning? Or So when the telomere reaches a certain limit, there is a limit called uh, the Hayflick limit. And that is a particular boundary that initiates cellular senescence. So the cells will start to release uh, pro-inflammatory markers signaling and enter state where they start to function a bit differently, or it can mark the cell for apoptosis, so cellular death. And so it is actually a useful mechanism to mark cells that are no longer functioning properly for destruction. So that's a really normal part of our bodily system to produce new cells for particular purposes. And then once they have kind of either fulfilled that purpose or become degraded in other ways, it's helpful for our body to know to decompose those cells and deconstruct them. There is an increasing interest in this research. And why, why do we believe it's important? Why are we excited about doing research on this? They seem to be a kind of general marker that gets influenced by a whole bunch of different lifestyle factors, psychological variables, life history, exposure, things like that. And so in in some way, they're this useful global index. But part of the reason people are so interested in them is because they also, they are implicated in a number of diseases, particularly age-related diseases, and are predictive of mortality. And so they they both track a lot of different inputs and kind of give a general sort of index of health. So they're implicated in things like cardiovascular disease and pulmonary fibrosis. There's a whole range of different diseases that are are linked to shorter telomeres. And in some cases, actually longer telomeres too. So certain cancers are related to very long telomeres, like a hyper long telomere. Okay. How do we check the length of telomeres in in people? The group that we work with to do this is based out of UCSF. So there's collaborators of ours that have labs specifically dedicated to measuring telomere length. And this is done in this case via PCR. So there's a couple of different methods for measuring telomeres. Southern blot is another one, but we work with a team that does uh, PCR assay. There are also companies that do this 
for people in the general public if you want to have them measured. There are a lot of caveats for why we don't think that's necessarily a useful thing to do for the average person. Partly that has to do with how well we can measure these things right now and how meaningful one measurement might be because they differ in different types of cell tissues. There's a lot of different factors that can go into their lengthening or shortening or appearing to be lengthening or shortening. We don't think it's that useful for a person to make sense of on an individual level, but at this kind of group level, it can give us some indications as to what's going on. So I I actually just recently listened to a podcast that Alyssa Apple did sort of describing those those caveats and why she thinks it's not that useful. So Alyssa is one of my mentors also at UCSF and who has largely guided and introduced me to all of the telomere work. And what are the different cell types that we can test telomere length in? So we measure telomeres in the blood and particularly in a subtype of white blood cells. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One, it is a bit less invasive to get a blood sample than it would be to collect a different type of tissue sample. And telomerase, the enzyme that repairs telomeres, is not generally expressed in all types of tissues. So it's specifically expressed in immune cells. And so that is part of the reason we've looked at immune cells is to gauge this level of telomerase. And the other aspect is that the immune system is an important aspect of health and and part of the the mechanism that we would imagine plays a part in how these shortened telomeres kind of track the the overall health of the immune system and contribute to disease. So there are cell types in the body that does not have the telomerase and that cannot fix a broken telomere, so to speak. Right. I can't give you a detailed sort of breakdown of where exactly it isn't expressed. I know that it is expressed in white blood cells and often not in most other tissues in adults. So I think it is much more active during fetal development. And then it's one of the things that drops off in adults. So would it be fair to say then that that different lifestyle interventions that do have an effect on telomere length has an effect not on the entire body and on the entire cellular aging, it has an effect on certain aspects of our cellular functioning. And then that has an effect on our health in general. I'm not sure we know enough to say that one way or another, because particularly in our work, we've only really been looking at these handful of markers. And so it's possible that there are effects happening all over the body. Um, but we're not actually looking for those. And so I I don't think we can say one way or the other. The exciting part of research, uh, we don't know, but we can find out. Yes, yes. It always uh, leads to more questions than answers. (laughs) That's usually the process, yes. So could you tell me a bit more about the research that you've been doing and that you are doing? Yeah, I have been involved now in three different large-scale studies of meditation. And the first is known as the Shamata Project, and it was conducted and the data was collected long before I was in the lab that I am now. So I'm a graduate student at UC Davis in um, the lab of Cliff Sarin. 
And so he and many of our colleagues had run this study prior to me joining the lab. And that is a study of two three-month retreats. And so in that particular study, they were focused on a type of meditation called shamatha meditation. And so I've, I've been kind of tangentially involved in that and looking at some of the biomarkers from that study. But where I really got involved in the lab and the work that I've mostly done during my grad study is on a study that we did at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Marin. This study focused on a one-month intensive silent residential retreat where participants were living on site for for the month. And we were looking particularly at self-reported psychological variables and biomarkers, including telomere length and telomerase levels across the course of this one-month retreat. And then we compared those folks with participants in the local Spirit Rock community and who had similar levels of meditation experience and who were matched in age and gender. So we wanted a comparison group that was very similar and also meditators, but were not actively engaged in the retreat. And so that's the study where we found lengthening in in telomere length across the three-week interval that we were looking at but we did not find changes in telomerase levels, so the enzyme levels. But you did see a form of lengthening in the telomeres themselves. In the telomeres. In the telomeres, yes. yes. I need to learn how to pronounce this. In the <laughs> telomeres. Yes. So, so we measured the telomeres and found an increase in telomere length in the retreat participants. And we also measured the enzyme telomerase and in, in this case, did not see a group level change in the enzyme. And so there are a number of reasons why we can speculate that that might be. And the main factor that I think about when I think about these is the time scale that we are measuring. And so we have two measurements, three weeks apart, and telomere length and telomerase levels can change on very different time scales. So telomerase is something that has been shown to change in the span of an hour, where telomere length generally is thought to change over months or even years. And so part of the reason I think we did not see a change in the telomerase levels is that we might just have the the wrong window to be looking at fluctuations in telomerase. We likely need many more measurements to kind of get a clear picture of what is happening with the enzyme levels. Do we know if the telomere lengthening is stable? We do not. So, so in this particular study, we only have the, the two time points at the beginning of their retreat and the three weeks into their retreat. And we don't have any follow-up measures beyond that. And so this is an area that needs further study to explore how stable those increases are. And really, it needs to be replicated and expanded upon quite a bit because we, in that case, had 28 participants. So it's a relatively small sample size. And there's a whole lot of other variables that might be contributing to this. So in our work, kind of the unifying theme of our lab is this study of intensive meditation. So we all have different focal areas in terms of the type of research that we do, but we conduct these studies of intensive retreats. And 
that means that we have to consider all of the other factors that go into a retreat in addition to meditation. So things like the diet and the schedule and the location and the teachers and all of these other factors that might be contributing to some of the things that we're seeing too. That is kind of a protected environment where you are disconnected from the regular stressors of your life. Exactly. Do you know if there's any other research out there where they have looked on on lifestyle interventions and the stability of telomere length? If it does increase, if it is stable over time, is this something that we know anything about or is it a new area? That's a good question. I know that there is some work that I am just not very familiar with. So I do think there there is some research to that effect. But I also think that there's conversation around the research methods and variability in the assays. And so it is in some cases unclear whether we're really seeing lengthening or if this is kind of an artifact of the way that we're measuring. One of the potential things that might show up as what's known as pseudo lengthening, where we see what looks like a lengthening that may not really be an actual increase in the length of the telomeres is that telomere length varies by different cell types. And so different types, particularly even in blood cells, they can have different lengths of telomeres. And so one thing that can happen is that the composition of the sample that we're taking might be different from time point to time point. So these different cell populations, depending on how many of those are represented in the sample that we're looking at, can shift around the average telomere length of that sample. And so one way to better understand that is using cell sorting so that we have a clearer picture of the different subcell populations and, and what is in a particular sample. But that requires, to my understanding, fresh blood samples and is costly and time intensive to do. And so it's not something that's been done much in any of the meditation research yet. And so while very exciting that we see this lengthening, there are some caveats why it may not be actual lengthening that we're observing. And so we need to continue to research this and make more sense of these different factors. What do we know about the possible reasons behind it? Let's say that there is a true lengthening of the telomere mm-hmm. and that that would have an effect on the longevity of that specific cell line, at least. What do we believe could be the actual cause of that? Of the lengthening of the telomere? Sort of the connection between meditation and the effect. Our lab did a short theory paper, little review on the studies that have looked at meditation in relation to telomere length. And we have a theoretical model with a few different components in it. And the interesting thing and the tricky thing is that there's a lot of different steps between how you get from mental training and how you go about your daily life to what's happening at this cellular level. So it's not really, you know, fleshed out from beginning to end, but part of what we've been thinking about has to do with different cognitive processes like meta-awareness and something known as de-reification and how we're directing our attention. And so these different processes are thought to be strengthened through different meditation techniques. The idea is then that what is happening in our mind is affecting 
our physiology and that we can support more beneficial physiological states that might be causing less wear and tear on our bodies and will ultimately result in less damage to the telomeres. And and possibly cultivating states where restoration and repair can happen as well. So both diminishing states where there's damage occurring, but also supporting repair. So it's a combination of reducing negative effects and actually adding positive effects. Yeah, I think so. By being able to direct our attention, one of the things that I think that that supports is being able to clearly recognize causes and conditions. And so to be able to track something long enough to understand how that influences you. And another component being meta-awareness. And so the ability to kind of step back and observe your thought process and where your mind goes. And so one thing that this could support is often when we're in a stressful circumstance or if we've experienced a stressful circumstance but are then out of that circumstance, we can ruminate about that. And that rumination is thought to prolong the stressful circumstance and the physiological reaction in our body. And so by increasing meta-awareness, you can increase your capacity to, to recognize that that is happening and to know that that is happening. And if you couple that with strength and attention, you might actually be able to do something else with your mind in those moments. So in your article, there was something called the generalized unsafety theory, uh, mm-hmm. which I found really interesting. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So the generalized unsafety theory of stress, the guts model, I think they call it for short, is a model I'm only recently familiar with. So I came upon this when writing this article. And The thing that I find compelling about it is that it essentially restructures the ideas in stress theory. So most stress theories are focused around stressors. So what is it that's causing the stress or acute stress responses? And so they can be considered like a stimulus response model. And what the guts model does is kind of flip this inside out and says, What happens if we assume that our stress response is always primed and and ready to respond, but that we actually learn safety signals and that there are safety signals in our environment that help us to inhibit that stress response? And so rather than assuming that a stress response is elicited by a particular stimulus, we think of it as being suppressed by these supportive or safety signals and that it is then disinhibited when those safety signals go away. I think this is interesting if you look at how different we are as people, that one thing that stresses out one person doesn't necessarily stress out another person. So it kind of makes sense in a way then to think that anything could stress you out. Any experience, anything in life could be a stressor. And what you as an individual learn to be safe or tell yourself is okay, then does not elicit a response. Yeah. And one of the things that I am getting curious about is if we think of the stimuli in our environment, our internal environment, our physical state, or our physical environment where we are, or even our social environment, If we think about the ratio of what might be threatening to 
soothing or safety inducing. I, I wonder if that might tell us more rather than looking explicitly at the stressors or explicitly at the, the safety cues. Is there a balance of these that regulates optimal <laughs> functioning? And one of the ways that I think that this ties into some other stress models, so appraisal models that make a distinction between a challenge or a stress is that if you are well-resourced in certain ways, whether you have the support of loved ones or a comfortable living space or things like that, things that might be a stressor to one person could be a, a challenge that actually allows you to grow in another context, right? So I think it's this balance between our resources and the challenges that we face. And so we're not talking about coping mechanisms then, because when it's a coping mechanism, the stress has already occurred. And here we're talking about safety cues in your environment, both external and internal, that stops the stress from occurring in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure quite where the line is there, because I do think that in some ways, when we think about coping, it's how are you using those resources? Do you know that they're there and, and are you engaging with them, right? So if you're, are you seeking social support and what is that relationship like? That is it effective when you seek social support, depending on the quality of your relationships? So one point that the authors of the GUTS model make is that this doesn't necessarily negate the existing stress models that, that focus on acute stressors, but it offers an explanation for a lot of the different paradigms where we see chronic stress without explicit stressors. So I think that the value added is in explaining or, or thinking about these circumstances where there aren't explicit stressors but they, they might go hand in hand. This might help to explain some of the things that are not explained currently with the more acute stress focused models. Mm. I think it's really interesting what you mentioned previously there, that it's a, it could be a good idea to look at your own life and see what are things that stress me out and what are the resources available to me and what is the balance between those? How can I maybe shift something in there? Because it's difficult to have the goal to eliminate all types of stress and to eliminate all kinds of aversive events because that doesn't really function in life. We don't have that much control. But then to look instead at, okay, so how can I find a better balance then between things that help me cope with these stressors mm -hmm. and that that can have an effect on our health in itself? Yes. So another area of connection that I see between the guts model and where meditation might be having some influence on us is that the generalized unsafety theory focuses a bit on the fact that we learn a lot of this as children in early life, but even before that, a lot of this is um, programmed in the neonatal environment. So while we're developing. So a lot of our programming, so to speak, uh, happens so early on that we don't always have conscious access to those memories or it essentially means that a lot of our uh, responses can be unconscious and things that are happening outside of our conscious awareness. And I think one of the things that meditation can do, and this varies, of course, by type of practice and tradition and all of these other factors, but one of the things that it can help us do is bring into awareness things that are generally unconscious. So if we think about breathing, 
for example. We don't have to think about breathing for it to happen. It happens automatically, but it's something that we can attend to and explore and observe and learn something more about. It's also something we can have some level of control over. And even that, the sound of that, I don't like that because we, d- we don't fully control it, but we can influence it, right? We can have an effect on it. And I think the same can be true of our emotional responses. So we have the ability to attend to them and to learn more about them um, and to influence them. And so I think the mental training aspects of meditation can help us build the tools to explore and to alter some of our emotional responses and our stress responses to circumstances that we we can't otherwise control. So it can help us modulate our own responses to our environments. So research on on longevity, or at least talking about longevity, has become more and more popular. How can we increase our lifespan? How can we increase our healthy lifespan uh, in particular? And so would you say that the telomere research is part of longevity research? Yes. So telomeres are considered one of the, the cellular markers of aging, along with others. So there are things like the epigenetic clock, and there are other uh, indicators of longevity and aging. So this is just one among several different readouts, but it does tend to predict longevity and mortality and immune responses and how well we, we respond to certain challenges, whether they be health-related What are you excited about in, in the future? Where do you see this going? What are the, the questions that you would like to have answered? We are currently running a study. It's a longitudinal study, a year-long study during the COVID pandemic. And so this study is designed to be a naturalistic study. So rather than um, look at a particular intervention, like the prior study that I was mentioning um, where we look at an intensive retreat, what we're doing in the current study is exploring how people use these practices in their day-to-day life and how people have decided to implement some of their meditation training and these concepts to cope with the, the uncertainty and the challenges that have arisen in the last year. So I'm very excited to see some of the results of this. We are currently doing the one-year follow-up right now, and so we'll be finished with the data collection shortly, hopefully. But when you ask me what I'm excited about, it brings another kind of idea to mind that we've been talking more and more about, which is an idea of a mobile laboratory, a a biobus, so to speak, (laughs) so that we could build a database that might allow us to answer some of the the tougher questions about meditation retreats. And in my case, I'm still really interested in learning more about telomere length and telomerase and telomere biology. And some of the, the caveats and the things that make that challenging to come up with more definitive answers about how does this happen and what are the conditions and circumstances needed to see these changes in telomere length there are some logistical challenges to how to do those studies and how to get enough people and enough data to start to tease out some of the different aspects of meditation training. So if we think specifically about retreats, there's 
the retreat context, the center, the length of the retreat, the style of meditation, the teachers, all of these different things that might be contributing to the outcome. And we'd like to start to tease those apart. And so one of the the ways that we've been dreaming about doing this is having a mobile laboratory where we're able to go and collect data from many different retreat centers and start to build a database that would allow us to, to answer some of these questions. This research that you're doing and, and research in general on, on telomeres, there's still a lot of things that needs to be done in order to fully understand this and fully be able to say like, yes, this is actually what is happening. And now we can say for sure. There are a lot of indications. There are a lot of really exciting data pointing towards it having an effect, but Absolutely. there's still a lot of work to do, right? Yeah, this is very much in its infancy. So the review paper that I mentioned that we did a couple of years ago now summarized the results of about 20 studies. There's something like 22 studies that have looked at some combination of meditation and telomere biology. But there are just so many different ways that this can vary in terms of the type of meditation and the type of intervention and what was measured and the length of time these things were measured. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in those studies. That's great on the one hand, because it, it starts to let us look at the question from these different angles, but there's not enough research in any particular domain yet to say anything definitively. So another feature of those studies is, is the population. A lot of them have been done with cancer patients or uh, different populations with different diseases, and a handful have been done on healthy volunteers. And so starting to map all those different distinctions requires a lot of participants. And particularly in the type of work that we do when we're looking at retreats, there's another layer of logistics to that in terms of working with retreat centers and having facilities to do this state-of-the-art biological work close enough to the retreat centers where people are doing this meditation. And then there are levels of how much are we influencing a person's experience and their retreat by having them participate in these different assessments that we're doing. So there's a lot of different factors that make it so that no one study can really capture and assess all of these things. And we really need a combination of different types of studies and different kinds of studies with different emphasis to, to get a clear picture of what's happening. Mm. I think this is one of the interesting and amazing parts of research as well, that it's such a creative outlet. There is so much creative thinking going into it. You need to look at something and just let your mind go bananas and go in all <laughs> kinds of directions and like, but what if this thing would be? Or what if that thing would be? Or could this be something that affects it? And just, just really try to be outside of the box, be completely open and just, that's why we should always like ask a group of five-year-olds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I really appreciated how much science could be a creative endeavor until this past year. So partly that came our study uh, looking at people's coping mechanisms and how they're using meditation during COVID. Of course, like probably many, many, many researchers in the past year, we had a particular idea in mind initially that we then had to completely adapt to do this, this study remotely. And it expanded and changed in ways that we didn't you know, know was possible until it 
needed to be possible. And so I have learned quite a bit about the logistical aspects of meditation and how how do we test these things in scientific ways when there are so many different variables and, and influences to think about and to consider. And the thing that I found very compelling throughout our process has been getting feedback from participants and knowing from their perspective where our measures make sense and don't make sense as well. So that's been a really informative component of some of the work we've been doing lately is working with different groups and getting different perspectives on what makes sense and doesn't make sense to improve our tools for measuring some of these changes that we're interested in. You learn so much from communicating with other people and really listening. Absolutely. And often since it can trigger new thoughts in oneself, talking to someone else and their perspective can just make you go like, oh, oh yeah. But but then if you think of it that way, then if you add this thing that I've been thinking about, and that's sort of how we progress as a as a community, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an area where I think we might really have a chance to improve in science is, is how we communicate with one another and exchange ideas and to do that openly and freely without a lot of ego involved. <laughs> yeah. And that can be really challenging when careers depend on things and funding and being wrong can really have a lot of consequences. It makes yeah. us a little bit more phobic, I think, of that possibility. I hope that there's some shift in the way that we communicate. I think that is on the way. And I think also with the pandemic, since we have been forced to learn new ways of interacting with people, new ways of dealing with logistical issues, mm -hmm. I, I think it is something that was shifting our reality enough to create a lot of new thoughts that is going to help us move forward. Yeah. So the interest that you have in meditation and doing this type of research, does it come from personal experience or? Yes. So interestingly, I got involved in meditation and this research kind of simultaneously. I had had a little bit of exposure to meditation previously. And I also, I had done my, my bachelor's degree in biology But I sort of started this line of research and my own intensive kind of experience at, at the same time. And so I have been on probably 10 meditation retreats at this point of anywhere from two to 10 days. And that experience definitely motivates a lot of my research questions. And also some of the questions that we ask about how people engage with practice. So this is another dimension that I'm interested in, in terms of there's just a giant range of possibilities for how a person can engage from anywhere from doing five minutes with an app on their phone to doing a month or three months or a year long residential retreat to a weekly group with a local sangha or community to reading books about. So there's all these different platforms and ways that people can build it into their life. And I think some of those are going to work much better for certain people than others. And so it's partly about finding the fit for what works for you. 
but I can also imagine that those different modalities bring different strengths and different aspects of the practice out. And I think because today we tend to ask someone, do you meditate? And then it's a yes or no. And right. I am I am sort of <laughs> waiting for the future when the question is going to be a bit like, do you exercise? Because now yeah. if we ask someone, do you exercise? And they go, yes. We ask, okay, what, what do you do? Like, right. is there a specific form that you enjoy particularly much? And that we will have the same tendency around meditation and go like, oh, really? So how do you do it? And how do you feel it affects your life? Because it is a wide range of different methods. It is a wide range of different practices. And as you said, the most important part is find something that you feel is beneficial for yourself right. and not something that you think is the way to do it. Right. So what are you going to do? What, what are you going to continue to do, whether you find it meaningful, valuable, useful, something you just enjoy doing? And what fits for your lifestyle? What are you going to be able to incorporate and keep doing? Yeah. And for me, at first, that was retreat. I didn't have much of a daily practice or an individual practice. I would go on retreats once or twice a year for several years. And it's only been in the last two or three years where I've started to incorporate it more and more into my daily life. And what has allowed me in this pandemic to practice on a much more regular basis. I wouldn't say every day, but many days a week, I log in and I practice with a sangha, an online community. And every morning there's anywhere from, you know, four or five to 20 people. And that space I find incredibly valuable. And the structure is really supportive for me. That's amazing that you found this way that really resonates with with you and, and gives you additional benefits in the structure of the practice and not just the practice mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. So this was really interesting, really amazing. There's a lot of interesting things to to come on this, but I think you have some really good insight into the value of knowing yourself and thinking about what works for me, what is good for me, what is the balance that I have in my life since everybody's circumstance is different and everybody's experience differ. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for this. It's been really amazing to talk to you and I hope to see you again someday. Thank you. I really appreciated uh, this opportunity and have enjoyed our conversations. I'll now go through some major points on what we learned about telomeres and their impact on longevity. So first, let's look at DNA. Our DNA is organized into structures called chromosomes, and what we call genes are specific parts of that DNA within those chromosomes. Genes are the parts of the DNA that codes for different building blocks that we need to create and maintain the biological beings that we are. And so telomeres are the caps at the ends of these chromosomes. They're made up of DNA themselves and serve as buffers where they protect the coding DNA and they get incrementally shorter with cellular division. So when our cells replicate and divide, there is a machinery that copies the DNA, but it needs a place to attach to. So that little bit, that sequence where the machinery attaches never gets filled in and is therefore lost from the copy. And so they get just a little bit shorter each time. So when the telomere reaches a certain limit, the cells will start to release pro-inflammatory markers, signaling and entering a state where they start to function a bit different, or they can be marked for cellular death. So measuring telomere length can give a general form of index of health, 
and they're also implicated in a number of diseases, particularly age-related diseases, where they are predictive of mortality. There is some scientific evidence supporting the theory that meditation impacts telomeres in a way that could support longevity. The main study we talked about today looked at a month-long intense meditation retreat and some lengthening of telomeres in white blood cells seemed to occur. So the idea is that what is happening in our mind is also affecting our physiology and that we can support more beneficial physiological states that might cause less wear and tear on our bodies and that will ultimately result in less damage to the telomeres. And also possibly cultivating states where restoration and repair can happen as well. It's a combination of reducing negative effects and actually adding positive effects. We also talked about something called the generalized unsafety theory that is a little bit different than most stress theories. So most theories are focused around things that cause stress, things that trigger acute stress responses. So they are considered a stimulus response model. The generalized unsafety theory is kind of a way to flip this inside out and says, what happens if we assume that our stress response is always primed and ready to respond, but that we actually learn safety signals and that there are safety signals in our environment that help us to inhibit the stress response. So rather than assuming that a particular stimulus is going to cause us stress, we think of our stress being suppressed by supportive or safety signals. And I think this is a very interesting and powerful way to think about stress because it brings the focus away from the external stimulus that is feeling stressful to us and making us look at a more holistic view of what is my structure of safety? What are different safety signals that I have in my environment? And how can I create a balance between those so that there is enough safety signals to make me resilient against stressors that come from outside? So there's still a lot of questions to be answered in this field that will bring us closer to knowing if and how meditation can protect ourselves and increase our longevity. But there seems to be some evidence that suggests that they do. I'm excited to see what the future holds for telomere research. And if you are as well and would like to know more, check out the links on uh, the podcast website, brainobservations.com. Thank you for listening in. And if you like the material, please subscribe to the show.